0: Abolition is not just about closing prisons. In fact, that doesn't make any sense in the larger scheme of things because closing prisons, which is generally a good idea, doesn't resolve all of the other problems that combined to make this enormous prison expansion program that all of the United States uh, experienced in one way or another happen.
1: That's Ruth Wilson Gilmore. And this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Ruth Wilson Gilmore toward the abolition of incarceration. The U.S. is number one. America is first in the world in having 2.3 million people behind bars. They are held in state prisons, federal prisons, county jails, juvenile correctional facilities, and other lockups. The prison industrial complex costs state and federal governments billions of dollars annually. Every year, over 600,000 people go to prison. Yet mass incarceration has not been a deterrent to crime, nor reduced societal problems of poverty and racism that drive tens of thousands of people to jails and prisons annually. It has even been argued that our penal system actually exacerbates societal problems. The movement for abolition, with its proud history of challenging slavery, should be applied today to the abolition of prisons. Our guest today, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, says abolition is not just about closing prisons. She urges us to address the problems that make us the incarceration nation. Ruth Wilson Gilmore is Director of the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics, and a Professor of Geography at the City University of New York. She's the author of Golden Gulag, Prison, Surplus, Crisis, and Opposition in Globalizing California. The American Sociological Society honored her with its Angela Davis Award. She spoke in Santa Fe, New Mexico at a Lannan Foundation event. And now, Ruth Wilson Gilmore.
0: So what I'm going to do is to give you a sense of the kind of work that I do. And the way I'm going to do that is to describe some campaigns that I have been part of over the years. And my part in those campaigns has been quite varied. So sometimes my part has been to do the fundamental research that other people take. Other times my part has been to do the actual organizing of people on the ground and all kinds of things in between. And the purpose is to give everybody here in the audience a rich sense of what abolition consists of. Because I suspect that many people in the audience think abolition means absence rather than presence. So I'm going to talk about presence. The kind of world we want is the kind of world we need. But the question that I want to put to you is what indeed brought the California Department of Corrections building Broom to a halt. It had opened a prison a year every year for 23 years. Hardly anyone wondered about what kinds of social relationships had changed in California's long thickening carceral geography, the geography in which prisons as those kinds of buildings are produced and filled. Much less were people wondering how those changes had developed into a provisional abolitionist geography. So in this lecture, we're going to explore how organizing from the ground up interrupted California's prison building boom. How did combining legal and political struggle on the one hand and connecting labor environmental gender and municipal effort on the other raise barriers to prison expansion and thereby radiate consciousness and strategy to repurpose common sense about how and where to fight carceral geographies developed deliberately but not inevitably so if the prison fix is a spatial solution to social economic and political problems it is necessarily then indicating places, power, and processes far beyond any group of buildings that are surrounded by an electrified fence. Practical abolitionism demands constant attention to the volatile interactions of subjectivity, how people think about themselves, and structure the kinds of constraints that people struggle within. At the outset, the California Prison Moratorium Project, which started in the summer of 1998, wasn't certain where to begin. After many fits and starts, California Prison Moratorium Project zeroed in on the South San Joaquin Valley. So that's in central California. They did outreach in the vast region by way of classified ads in weekly newspapers that invited people who wanted to stop a prison in their town to call a local number where a voicemail would take their information and promise a human would soon phone them back. The cost for the outreach was low, as befit a tiny organization made up entirely of volunteers who supplemented the, their modest resources with an annual afternoon bowlathon fundraiser. <laughs> While they didn't know who they'd find, they knew every town had at least one prison opponent, often a small business person, sometimes the chronic malcontent. In other places, a journalist, a school teacher, a union organizer, or a priest, but there was always one. Stranded by the flood of intuitive common sense that insisted local expenditure of hundreds of millions of dollars could not fail to improve modestly educated local people's lives. So big dollar numerators and small population denominators suggested something terrific could happen if people could only figure out how to make some of the flowing cash stick. Failure turned out to be the rule, not the exception in most cases. Almost all cases. So various kinds of people frustrated for various kinds of reasons called the California Prison Moratorium Project number. Some were not even from places facing new prisons, but rather from towns that had said yes, and then lost their night sky or their calm roads, or saw affordable housing swept away by new developments intended for highly paid guards. Others called to complain about a new culture that disrupted the community violence attributed to Guards families, correctly or not, as well as the fact that for whatever reasons, Guards families didn't settle near where they worked. The calls were not many, but they added up, and the organization responded and offered to meet. A quick run down the valley by six organizers over a three-day weekend turned up a number of people who eventually participated in a mini-conference held at Berkeley to discuss how best to stop prisons, and that then form the knowledge base for a handbook that the Prison Moratorium Project wrote that's still available online if you're trying to stop a prison in your town. At about this same period between 1996 and 2001, the organized labor movement across the United States had been recruiting young people, mainly, although not exclusively, college students to immerse themselves in training, the periods were called Union Summer, to become field organizers. Young people joined the United Farm Workers by way of Union Summer and used networks that radiated through universities and labor councils to share strategies, connect campaigns, and issue calls for solidarity and struggle. California Prison Moratorium Project learned from a prosperous farmer in the valley, uh, small by valley standards, he only had a couple of thousand acres, and from colleagues of colleagues who worked with the United Farm Workers, that a new prison was being proposed in Tulare County in the South San Joaquin. The farmer didn't want the prison because the small city, which is what a prison is, it's a city, would use too much water. Organizers learned that the small group of anti-prison growers had made the conscious transition from not in my backyard to not in anybody's backyard. Why? Mostly, they were perplexed that year on year, after defeating one prison proposal, a new one would pop up in the county, a different host town, same vulnerable water table. One of the farmers, a grandmother, decided in 1999, 20 years ago, to learn a new skill, and so she had her college grandson teacher to surf the web. <laughs> she discovered and shared with her group that the eminent Rand Corporation, Hardly Lefty Looney, showed that locking up more and more Californians wasn't really solving problems. In other words, they, the Rand Corporation, and they, this group of farmers, did not believe either that achieving some carceral goal would end something called crime, or that the pipeline of criminalized people existed because crime was out of control. This is a huge shift in consciousness. They did not argue, as they might earlier have done, this is the farmers now, that the prisons should be in the communities that the prisoners came from. Rather, the farmers decided that only only a barrier to new prisons altogether would compel urban California, which they tended to call Los Angeles, (laughs) urban California to do something else with their money and their people. These relatively small but prosperous family farmers neither embraced nor opposed the welfare state somewhere else, but at the same time as deeply dependent on seasonal labor, they hardly wanted wage competition or alternatives to weaken their labor market control. They spoke approvingly about the de facto porous borders that ensured an adequate supply of migrant farm workers despite whatever immigration laws might be current. So it's very complicated. In the same county, the United Farm Workers, meanwhile, was working to link hungry households with food. Remember, there had been a freeze and people were out of work. Meeting people at distribution centers or going door to door to ensure people realized they were eligible for food and not embarrassed to receive it, the union organizers became aware of members' anxiety concerning the new prison. They put out a scattershot call for help. Prison Moratorium Project got the message a few different ways at once. It bounced through a think tank in Washington, D.C. It relayed between former college roommates, and it surfaced at a dinner of casual acquaintances. Here's the situation. Who can help call this number? As it turned out, the public hearing on whether to approve the prison was slated for the Monday following the September weekend that prison moratorium project organizers had scheduled to drive around the valley and meet some lonely opponents who had called the voicemail. In back-to-back meetings with the farmer and the UFW organizer in the corner of a diner, California Prison Moratorium Project laid out a strategy they'd derived from their militant research and cut a solid argument against any prison into two or three sentence pieces, each of which would fit the two-minute limit imposed on public comments. All of the sentences were translated so that people could testify in the two major but hardly exclusive town languages, Spanish and English. Other languages there might well have been Hmong, Mixtec, or Urdu. The farm workers spoke, the farmers spoke. They laced their remarks in ways that demonstrated their mutual dependence in a world they can't much control, as well as their unequal power in commanding the undivided attention of the decision-making body. But everyone said their lines, and at the end of the hearing, the council de- deliberated and voted unanimously against the prison. I never want to hear about a prison for this town again, one of the council persons said in exhausted disgust. Sharing their experiences later at the small statewide mini-conference strategy session with other organizers, advocates, and scholars, two of the people who testified, a United Farm Workers regular organizer and her teenage daughter, explained how the region's fraught geography gave them no alternative but to speak up for the record and encourage others to do the same. Their need as migrant workers to be in fairly constant motion across space meant that every household had stories of people stopped, detained, threatened by local and county police who, despite not being federales, wield immigration enforcement along with the many other tools of organized violence. Meanwhile, the organized abandonment of transportation and other infrastructure, promised to get better, of course, with the proposed prison but never doing so, made both moving about and staying at home difficult. The daughter explained how her high school education seemed, in part, seemed designed to channel her ambitions to individualistic ends. In part, by thwarting her effort to organize a student UFW chapter in her school. So, anybody here organizing chapters of Red Nation and so forth can take heart from this story. They talked about how they have had to be creative in order to mitigate the difficulties they and their families and neighbors endure in the region. But also how standing up to the council in a time of hunger shifted some people's consciousness of the union even more than the fact that the union had been feeding the hungry. The observation brings to mind the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense motto, Survival Pending Revolution. The practical work and attendance shift in consciousness was enabled by, although not fully realized as, the food program. The mode of organizing, if not the outcome, was reproducible, and California Prison Moratorium Project organizers traveled around California, sometimes one at a time, sometimes in twos and threes, to work with communities facing similar challenges. In most cases, some kind of organizational infrastructure already existed, even if the person who put out the alarm, a photographer, a grumpy grandmother, was not part of a group while small groups found ways to connect with other organizations over common concerns. But more, the mobile organizing unit put communities in touch with one another, and before cheap social media made intense collaboration at least seem easier, people used telephones and fax machines, automobiles, and email to make common cause with strangers across counties and regions, and eventually in other states as well, and now beyond the borders of the United States. The scale and scope of convergences in this small story offers a glimpse into the dynamics of change on the ground of the Golden State's prison terrain. So you see from this story the kind of detailed work that we had to do, the sorts of surprises that we encountered, and the kinds of uh, provisional but not guaranteed solutions that we devised. So I have one more story that's got some detail in it, and then I will give you some highlights of other stories. A handful of people from Critical Resistance and the California Prison Moratorium Project set out to stop a particular new prison, a different one from the one I just told you about. The proposed new facility had been a thank you gift to the California Correctional Peace Officers Association from newly elected Governor Gray Davis in appreciation of the Guard's $2 million donation to his campaign. By the way, this is a Democrat. So don't do the Republicans Democrats thing. It doesn't work that way. Prior research has already revealed, had already revealed, by me, um, <laughs> <laughs> that the state's next prison would be put in Delano, uh, as, as, alongside another new era mega prison. And a mega prison is built, designed for five or 6,000 people. The multi-generation organizers turned their accumulated experience across a wide variety of long-duration campaigns, local, national, and international, to the task of getting advice and contacts from and about already organized people who might be summoned to stop, to the Stop Delano II campaign. They brought strategies and histories from anti-apartheid, black power, agricultural boycott, University anti racism and anti sexism campaigns to bear on how they approached people in faith communities, worker centers and hiring halls, social justice and environmentalist groups, schools and colleges, municipalities and development agencies, and of course, unions. The union summers, which I've already discussed a little bit, brought new tacticians into a variety of large scale organizations that focused on a broad range of people who were vulnerable for any combination of these attributes. They were low wage. High value added, contingent on insecure jobs, women, non-citizens, people with records, public servants across specialties, isolated workers of various skill levels, whether truck drivers or home health care providers. Long-term or novice rank-and-file organizers set their sights on workers for whom buttressing their side of power relations on the job would be worth the risk. So outreach involved both identifying and persuading possible members, planning campaigns, winning elections within unions, and getting to the bargaining table. The effort to grow unions ran against strong trends in opposite directions, worker outsourcing, collective bargaining givebacks, narrowing interpretations of rights, eligibility, and discouraging decisions by external governing bodies, especially the National Labor Review Board. Unions also competed with each other to grow membership, and some justified criticism argued that raw numbers seemed to mean more than securing reliable wages, benefits, and job security. Within these labor institutions, members fought over what the union should do, how, and to what end. For many years, members of the California State Employees Association struggled to reinvigorate their union's democratic principles and practices. Some of the opposition vying for leadership within that union included non-guard prison workers. The guards had their own union. Non-guard prison workers, especially teachers who had provided education inside the walls their entire careers. They had firsthand experience of the system's rapid growth and witnessed the CCPOA consolidate its power. As the system acquired square footage and prisoners, educational opportunities withered. The teachers and their comrades in the struggle knew firsthand the role education played in enabling people to go home and stay home from prison, at least under earlier regimes of criminalization. Indeed, they knew that their students were among the people who, at most recent count, add up to about half of the U.S. workforce. Listen to this. 70 million people in the United States workforce who, because of arrest or conviction records, have impediments that keep them from many jobs available to modestly educated people in the free world. So if you add those people together with people who are not documented to work, so think of the 70 million as people who are documented not to work, add those together with people who are not documented to work, you have more than, a little more than half of the U.S. workforce. Think about that. Despite good arguments, the teachers faced a set of structural problems that couldn't be solved by petitioning management or even teaching bigger classes. Resources drained away from elementary and secondary level classrooms and many of the instructional spaces filled with bunks. While during the same period, federal money that had been available to pay for individuals' college education disappeared when President Clinton, another Democrat, eliminated Pell Grants for prisoners in 1994. The Guards Union depended for its size and dues and therefore its political donation clout on maintaining a steady flow of people into and growth of the system. Both best practices, guidelines and contract agreements specified the ratio of custody staff to prisoners with higher security prisoners producing the highest number of union jobs. In addition, the fate of people released on parole lay in the hands of members of the Guards Union as parole officers were police rather than the social workers county probation officers had been trained to be. Famously, people on parole in California in these years were twice as likely as people on parole anywhere else in the USA's 50 plus jurisdictions to be sent back to prison on technical violations. 70% as compared with one in three for an additional six to 12 months. Less than a year might seem short relative to growing sentences, but as has been vividly reported in jail studies, even a brief custody period completely upends people's lives, costing them shelter, employment, court expenses, mental well-being, and household and community relations. At the same time, prison short-timers, not unlike lifers at the other end, rarely had the chance to participate meaningful, if at all, in the remaining classroom opportunities. At the outset, the Stop Delano 2 organizers had tried to incite enthusiastic response to outreach from non-prison state employees whose agencies and individual jobs were facing the kind of squeeze the prison teachers endured. Opposing program cuts and layoffs was part of the ongoing fight to save the welfare state from organized abandonment. But it didn't appear that those whose jobs depended on the forces of organized violence, i.e. people who worked in the prisons, Uh, would be particularly receptive given the substantial year-over-year increases their wedge of the budget enjoyed. Ah, But there's always intra-institutional competition, as we who labor in higher education know. It's a real thing with real consequences. Complementing efforts to build the Popular Front, anti-Delano to organizers also tried to starve the project of legislative votes it needed for funding and led stacks of reports issued by reputable think tanks from office to office showing that Californians didn't want the prison, Californians didn't think they needed the prison, and Californians didn't want to spend the money on the prison. The goal was politically to link these sentiments with the needs of state social welfare employees and their clients in order to raise questions and spark debates about the proper use of the social wage, which is to say all our tax money. That said, it came as a surprise when the legislative director of the local union representing non-guard prison employees agreed to a meeting and five organizers drove to Sacramento to see what was going to happen. Despite long preparation for a day that was never, ever guaranteed to come, the organizers were stunned to find that the combination of persistent and targeted outreach with the noisier public face of of the campaign meant the meeting with several dozen strangers was far beyond entry level. Why is this prison a problem? Rather, the people at the meeting who consisted of all different kinds of representatives, shop stewards, including from prisons and so forth, already had reached a conclusion. That they, in this group, at least shared that the guards were a problem, that building this new prison was a problem, and indeed a proposed renovation and extension of San Quentin, the state's oldest prison, was something else that should be opposed that we hadn't even put on our agenda. For the union members who agreed to fight the Guards Union on the terrain of a new prison, the issue came down to renovating the union's larger purpose. The discussion in the room and knowledge prison workers and others brought into the room compelled the analysis to radiate beyond the Department of Corrections and focus instead on the opportunities for the union and its members wherever they might work at the moment in the free world. Put another way, while the guard members absolutely required prisons or people on parole, the same was as absolutely not true for the other union members. A locksmith is a locksmith. A janitor is a janitor. A secretary is a secretary. A teacher is a teacher. So, so here's the kind of thing that a nerd can do <laughs> that's useful. So if you have nerdly inclinations, go with it. Um, one of the things that happens for any big project of any kind, um, well, at least until the current administrations in Washington and elsewhere obliterate um, the rules, uh, is that a big project has got to produce an environmental impact statement or report. And the statement or report, although the first word is environmental, is not only about the effect that the project will have on what might one might think of as nature or the natural environment. It's actually the entire environment, which includes the built environment, it includes the cultural environment, it includes the employment environment, it's actually everything. Um, the problem with how many, I won't say all, but many environmental impact reports and studies that I have read um uh display is that the work is done to comply with the letter not the spirit of the law they're really badly put together they're not well intellected although they're done by people with phds in geography like me i mean people who went to the same school i went to so i know they learned how to do things properly they don't have to because their job is to crank these things out quickly so they do again to the letter of the law and um so in combing through uh the Delano, uh, Delano Two prison environmental report, you know, I read the employment thing, read it, and I read it, and I read it, and I said, I think I can figure out how few of these jobs will actually stick in this community. So I did the arithmetic. It It wasn't even higher math. It was just arithmetic and um, came up with 72. Then I turned it all over to my research assistant, this great guy called Pete Spinagle. And Spinagle redid the numbers, and he came up with 72. Then I went and got a Ph.D. student in statistics, because maybe it was statistical and not arithmetical, and she did it, and she came up with 72. So here's the funny thing. I just want to tell this little other story. So I came up with it. We publicized this Everywhere we could, we talked about it in the streets of Delano, door to door. Um, we just told people, this is the best that will happen. Along the way, a New York Times reporter, the other time I ever talked to the New York Times, although I didn't really, I just talked to you and the fact checkers. Um, uh, uh, a reporter called Evelyn Yevas called me to ask me about my findings. So I talked to her for, I don't know, like two hours on my cell phone. And this was the year 2000 when talking on a cell phone was really, really costly. Um, so I spent two hours on my cell phone talking to her and plugging it in and talking to her and convinced her of the veracity of my claims. And then she went and talked to the mayor of Delena and she told him what I told her. And he said, well, here's the problem that I face. This town is doing so badly that even 72 jobs or something is wow. not a number I can turn my nose up at. But in the New York Times story, nobody fact-checked this, the, the number was attributed to the mayor of Delano, not to the professor in Berkeley. And at first, of course, my feelings were hurt because, oh, I did all that arithmetic. Um, <laughs> but then I thought, well, how much better... Could it be then for the mayor of the town to say the number than for some outsider with an office at a fancy university in the Bay Area to say the number? So I was actually pleased to have been ripped off.
1: <laughs> You're listening to Ruth Wilson Gilmore Toward the Abolition of Incarceration. This is independent alternative radio. You can order copies of this program by calling one 800 one nine seven seven. That's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or you can order online on our website alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org.
0: So now I'm just going to give you um, brief insights into a number of other campaigns. One of the projects that we took up was trying to work with teachers, especially in kindergarten through 12th grade, to figure out how to bring abolition into curriculum organized around stopping this particular prison. And we built on work that had emerged from the struggles of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, from La Raza, and other groupings in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Um, A mere 12 years after the National Defense Education Act had sort of put forward a promise to expand higher education for all different kinds of people, and for especially first generation college seekers under the aegis of fighting communism. By 1970, the very people who had in some cases participated in this expansion were worried because the Panther Party had uh, a very broad educational campaign program, and one of the campaigns had been to change the curriculum and particularly to have some influence on what the shape of black studies at UCLA should be in 1969-70. Fifty years ago, John Huggins, my cousin, and Bungie Carter were assassinated for that work that they were doing, thanks to the machinations of COINTELPRO, the FBI and LAPD. So moving forward, for many, many months, many people worked with organized teachers in a social justice part of the state teachers union and others to do a number of projects, including develop curriculum for K-12 students, uh, that they could just bring into their classroom. It's not about prisons, it's about the world we want a different thing than saying we're just against prisons and then organizing that thinking around how to stop prisons. Um, having students, K-12 students, go and lobby their representatives and do many of the other kinds of things that many people who were involved in radical movement in the 1960s and 1970s here in the United States tried to do. Uh, the struggle linked the vulnerability of young people. In many ways. And in linking those vulnerabilities, we started to think as well about the other sorts of vulnerabilities to life and well being that people had throughout California. Uh, meanwhile, a group of organizers approached a group of loosely organized people called the Central California Environmental Justice Network to ask if it might be possible to present at their annual uh, conference uh, that was held in the Central Valley uh, a few words about the problems with this proposed prison. And granted 20 minutes, the organizers presented five minutes spoken, two in English and three in Spanish, and then a 15-minute um uh documentary that an artist named ashley hunt some of you are probably familiar with his word work had made for the campaign and at the end of that the people in environmental justice did not need one more minute of explanation they said we get it we are with you and out of that came an organization central california environmental justice network and ongoing ongoing projects that last even today the struggle linked the vulnerability of young people low-wage field workers aging populations with diminished diminished hospital and other medical access the casual toxicity of the regional economy from agriculture to goods transport ikea and amazon have warehouses near there that threaten water air and the well-being of many kids um, so picking up from the thinking uh, developed across these various campaigns the next project was to bring it all back home Uh, Los Angeles County, the urban California to the Tulare County farmers, was uh, planning to uh, increase a tax on, on residents, a sales tax on residents so that would enable hiring 5,000 additional police. So, in organizing people in the county uh, to stop that measure and to stop the increase in police, uh, the question went out what are you doing in your community that you could do more of if resources went to your com- community instead of to the police and to prisons? And so people came in to talk about what they do with young people, with formerly incarcerated people, with gender nonconforming people, with all different kinds of People And the fight, which went on and on and on, is kind of symbolized in the way that people talked with money made out of post-its to say what it was they actually want in the world. So this, too, is a picture of abolition. And at the end, the group managed to defeat the measure for the 5,000 additional police and have consistently defeated measures to build new prisons for women in the area. As well as people organizing on the outside, people who are locked up have been organizing themselves as well. And they've been doing so in a variety of ways. So, for example, people in the prisons for women in California, when they heard that the state was going to build lovely new gender-responsive prisons for them, managed at great risk to themselves to produce a petition with 3,500 names that were smuggled out of the prison, blown up, made into a huge role and dramatically unfurled at a legislative hearing to try to stop those prisons. Similarly, people locked up in the prisons within prisons, in one of the prisons for men in California, Pelican Bay State Prison, had at first tried to figure out a way that they could beg the prison authorities to give them some kind of pathway out of a prison, prison within a prison, uh, where at the time, there were three ways out. You could snitch, you could parole, or you could die. There was no other way to get out. And in their effort, they first petitioned upward, and all of their um, uh, pleas fell on deaf ears, although they had organized their petition through hunger strikes, and one of the hunger strikers had died. After calling off the hunger strike, after receiving no kind of um, meaningful response from the prison authorities, they decided to start again. They reignited the hunger strike at a time when the whole world again seemed to be coming up in uh, protests and opposition to intolerable circumstances. So the so-called Arab Spring, the uprisings in North Africa and West Asia, sparked the imagination of people in a prison for a prison who never can touch a human, another human being, who don't see each other, can only hear each other, who are never in the dark, and who get to go outdoors, if at all, maybe one hour a day. And their second time, instead of throwing their demands up, to the prison administration. Instead, they decided to look at the organization into which the Department of Corrections had set them, an organization that presumed there were racial and ethnic gangs whose antagonisms were permanent, violent, and unchangeable. And they said, oh, we can change this thing. So they put out a call to end the hostilities among the races. So my very last words. Capitalism requires inequality and racism enshrines it. The Pelican Bay State Prison Collective, the one that I just told you the story of, hidden from each other, experiencing at once the the torture of isolation and the extraction of time from their lives, refigured their world, however tentatively, into an abolition geography by finding a basis on which to rework their experience and understanding of possibility. In other words, through which they changed their consciousness, in part by seeing where their power actually lay. The fiction of race, the fiction of race, projects a peculiar animation of the human body. And people take to the streets in opposition to its real and deadly effects. So you all know Black Lives Matter, you all know Red Nation, and so forth. And in the end, as the, as the relations of racial capitalism, which is all of capitalism, take it out of people's hides, the contradiction of skin becomes clearer. Our largest organ, vulnerable to all ambient toxins, skin at the end, is all we have to hold us together, no matter how much it might seem to keep us apart. Thank you. (laughs) Abolition is not just about closing prisons. In fact, that doesn't make any sense in the larger scheme of things because... Closing prisons, which is generally a good idea, doesn't resolve all of the other problems that combined to make this enormous prison expansion program that all of the United States uh, experienced in one way or another happen. So um, the two stories that I just told in detail give you some you know, broad set of insights into the different kinds of struggles people are having in some cases, struggles that also involve conflict, like the farmers and the farm workers in Tulare County, and, or the guards union and the non-guards union in, in the California state, as well as the ways that people figure out how to resolve those issues, at least provisionally, to do something else.
2: So. And the political will for prisons is very strong.
0: It remains strong, although it's not as strong as it was. Not in California, in, and not in general in the United States, although the political will for jails, you might think a prison and a jail are the same, they're not, um, has been rising, kind of ticking up for two reasons. Uh, so prisons are, are establishments where people will serve a sentence if the sentence handed down is for a year and a day or more, even if they don't do the year and a day, if that's what the sentence is in the conviction. Uh, jail is for a year or less. And so jails tend to have people uh, moving through them a lot more. There's a lot of churn in jails. Most of the people who are in jail in the United States are there waiting for trial because they can't afford bail. And then some people are actually serving sentences. But there's been a lot of movement on the part of county sheriffs, and there are 3,100 counties in the United States, to expand their jail capacity. Why? One, because the state prison systems feel crunches because of uh, unfavorable court rulings. This is the California case. Or uh, because of legislative changes in budgeting priorities, as has happened in some other states. The legislatures have at the same time changed sentencing rules for certain kinds of convictions so that it becomes uh, impossible for the counties where everybody's convicted for all of these things, to send them to the state. They have to keep them at the county. And so the counties say, well, we have to expand our jail. The other reason, which has been very compelling in many counties, is the counties are expanding capacity, assuming that they can rent the capacity to ICE or the US Marshals. And this is happening all over the United States. And that actually, um, although people are often frothing at the mouth, about private prisons in the ICE arena, um, the fact is a lot of the private contracts under which uh, uh, detained people, Im- people under immigrant detention are being held, are contracts with county jails. It's happening all over the United States and it's been happening for quite some time. So again, the political will to funnel the money into the jails is there. The political will to funnel money into expanding rural hospitals that have been grievously depleted is not. A building is a building. An employee is an employee. So the difference is politics. It's not dollars. If you don't remember anything else I said tonight, please remember that and remember this. Oh, I have one more thing. <laughs> oh, we the remembering thing. When did prisons start to grow? They started to grow late 70s, early 80s. Where did the privates start taking off? After. They're parasites. They're parasites. They're parasites. If every single contract were ended tonight, how many people do you think would be released tonight? Zero. They're not in prison because of the private contracts. It's just that the public entity would take over management. That's the difference between public and private in this country. All right. Off my soapbox. You know, going after profits is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But, like, you know, wage increases is a way to go after profits and uh, having uh, wealthy individuals and corporations pay their fair share of taxes. Go back to the Eisenhower era. If you want to know what fair is, it's 90%. Um, Eisenhower, Republican. That having people pay their fair share of taxes is a way to go after profits. There are many ways to go after profits. In the case of prisons, uh, because people, I think, are trying quite genuinely to come to some understanding of what capitalism has to do with all this. Um, We'll look at something, a corporation, and corporate is one of those dirty adjectives, corporate power, corporate this, corporate that, and say, well then, now we can see what the problem is. It all must come from there. Now, my argument that I very lightly outlined at the beginning of my talk tonight is the problem is capitalism. The problem is capitalism, saving capitalism from capitalism. But how that works out should not be confused with how we follow the money. And not all money is profit. So when we follow the money from the state budgets through the prisons, where, where, where does it go? It goes into wages and salaries, whether for the guards or the teachers or the locksmiths or the secretaries. The money that goes through the prisons also goes to something that produces profits, such as utility companies. That's one of the biggest expenditures for prisons, which is not surprising because a prison is a city. The lights never go off. So utility companies get huge chunks of the annual budget of any prison or jail for that matter. Where else does it go? Debt service. Not all, but almost all of the prisons and jails built in this new era, so starting at the beginning of this, were built with debt, right? So that debt service means paying back a loan, if debt service sounds like jargon, paying back a loan that was lent to the state or the county or the city to build the jail. And when the state or the county or the city go off to investors and say, would you lend us money to build a jail? They also say to those investors, we promise we'll keep it full because if we don't keep it full, then we don't have to pay you back the the loan. This is really different from looking for the private prison. It's really different, even though there's a profit there. So there's debt service, there's utilities, there's wages and so forth. And then there are all the other parasitical things that come into play. For example, how it's difficult, it's extremely expensive for somebody in prison to call out and it's not that cheap for somebody outside to call in. Um, it's extremely expensive for people to get, um, it's what's called canteen, like, you know, sneakers or better toothpaste or whatever things you know people might want inside because the states have given contracts to the equivalent of like prison amazon but it's not amazon yet but it will be um (laughs) to provide all of the approved goods that prisoners are allowed to have and there's a huge markup on it because it is quite literally a captive audience right and so the families have to pay the extra money Whereas they could just go down to the, you know, Target or wherever and buy the sneakers, put them in a box, take them to the post office, send them off for, you know, $20 instead of $80. So there's profit extracted there. But the, all of those profit um, opportunities are parasitical. Does that mean it doesn't matter? Of course not. It matters. But make a campaign that's going to matter for the lives of the people for whom you think you're struggling. And again, ending a prison contract does not relieve anybody who's locked up of one minute of time that they owe to that building, including people in indefinite detention, which is the case with many undocumented people and people scheduled for deportation. So one of the things California did is they shipped some people out of state and rented beds elsewhere. So that would have looked like private prisons, although most of the rented beds were in public facilities elsewhere. And then those people started coming back as certain changes to sentencing made it possible for people to get, eventually be released instead of just shuffled around. And so that's what led to the, the reduction in the number of people in prison. And the other reason there was such a dramatic reduction in the number of people in prison in California was a concerted campaign on the part of people advocating on behalf of people in prisons for women, that the state not build those new prisons, but rather take seriously the original mandate that the commission overseeing that project had had, which was to identify um, 4,000, at least 4,000 people in prisons for women who, quote, shouldn't be there. And just think about that conceptually, right? And think about making up a number and saying 4,000, 2,000, 5,000, 6,000. Think about it. And think about what kind of manifestation of a flickering political consciousness shaped that call. And then ask yourselves how it is possible that a state commission would have come up with such um, a call if it had not been for the abolitionist work happening on the ground over over and over and over and over and over and over again elsewhere. So these arguments produced the possibility of a certain kind of opening, which again, at first, when the Gender Responsive Strategies Commission was formed, they put out a call to the wardens who ran the for then, Prisons for Women in California to identify people who could be released. But then people talked in probably not smoke-filled rooms, because it was after indoor smoking had been banned. (laughs) But morally, that's where they were. They said, well, no, instead of doing that, let's just build better prisons. So, they, you know, so I mentioned that this was a throwback to prison reform in the late 30s and 40s. Up until like the early 40s, women in California prisons were just housed in a different part of the prisons for men. And then they built these cottages in Tehachapi for women prisoners. All right, I, I think that rather than try to look backward, we ought to look forward. And in order to look forward, we should remember the history as the Aymara teach us, teach us is in front of us. So as we go forward to whatever future might unfold, we can see around us how people already are living differently, how people living differently might be derived from historical experiences of groups and places and so forth. So we can see that in the history that's before us. Um, and we can also see. Uh, quite uh, decisively how the various ways that people figure out how to learn to do new things to solve new problems. I'm not talking about violence. I'm talking about problems in general. People learn to do new things to solve new problems or bring old solutions to bear on new problems or new solutions to bear on old problems all can coalesce bit by bit into the creation of, and the expansion of, abolition geographies. So even though we're out of time, I'm gonna tell one more story. So one, here's history is in front of me. And one of the great uh, chronicler of abolition in practice was the great, great, great W.E.B. Du Bois. And all of you should read Black Reconstruction in America if you want to call yourself educated or if you want to call yourself an organizer or an activist. It's a long book. Some of it's a slog, but it's fantastic. And one of the things that Du Bois lays out in looking at that period is he shows us how the people who wrote the official histories of Reconstruction kept not noticing what was in front of them, right? They kept not seeing what was in front of them. So they kept not seeing the ways that freedmen and others arrange arrange themselves into uh, secure and sustainable communities by establishing public schools, by establishing local governments, by establishing relationships between and among towns, by situating themselves in such a way that they could gather together when threatened and spread out and live their lives um, separately when not. And one of the things that Du Bois says in that book, in a footnote, always read the footnotes, is the experience of the Negro worker during reconstruction provides the researcher with the opportunity to study inductively the Marxian theory of the state. I say this not because all you all should join me in being excited about studying the Marxian theory of the state, although it's not a bad thing to do, But rather, to think about how Du Bois, in saying those things, incites our analytical and perceptive imagination. To think about the world we actually see now and to think about the various ways it congeals and can change into a different world. And finally, one thing I'd like to say is, because abolition in the United States is understandably enough, so strongly associated with anti-slavery movements. Many people imagine either that abolitionists only care about black people, nothing could be further from the truth, or that abolitionists are really talking in a cagey and subtle way about some fact which is not actually correct, that people are in prison so that their labor can be exploited in there. That also is not true. And the movie, The 13th, did a great disservice to many people by making you think that the problem of prisons arrived when the 13th 13th Amendment was ratified. That is not the case. Convict leasing started on these shores in British colonial North America in 1620. The convicts who were leased were white people. I mean, people who became white. They weren't white, but their descendants are all white. So if you've heard of Georgia, you know about convict leasing. If you've heard of Australia, you know about convict leasing. This is not something that emerged after the end of the Civil War um, that then turned into chain gangs and then turned into mass incarceration. That is a comforting story because it's a story that makes it sound like there are a lot of innocent victims who we can care about. How about we get a- away from thinking Uh, they're innocent victims. We've got to step step up and be empathetic, and instead say, what are the political and social and economic problems that face us? How do those face those problems um uh coordinate the fact of mass incarceration, the fact of mass deportations, the fact of ongoing contradictions of settler colonialism, and what should we do as people who can organize ourselves as school children, union members, artists, um, writers? All of the ways that we can organize ourselves to do the work that we need to do to transform carceral geography into abolition geography.
1: You were just listening to Ruth Wilson Gilmore toward the abolition of incarceration. She spoke in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Ruth Wilson Gilmore is director of the Center for Place, Culture and Politics and a professor of geography at the City University of New York. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 33rd year, we are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such progressive voices as Angela Davis, Brian Stevenson, Michelle Alexander, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Toward the Abolition of Incarceration, just call us at one 800 Again, that number is one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to the Lennon Foundation. Joe Richie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you.
0: 15 seconds guidance is internal 12 11, 10 9 ignition sequence start 6 5 4 3 2 1 0 all engine running lift off we have a lift off 32 minutes past the... you are now entering the wonderful planet CJSW FM Broadcasting in Calgary Home to the people Of Treaty 7 And Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3 Here you will find The answer To all of life's Mysteries
2: Everyone and welcome to Classic Cool. I'm Fiona, and I have such a cool show for you guys today. Um, last week we focused on like Baroque music, and Baroque mu- and Baroque music is so broad, uh, and you can have so many different kinds of music. But uh, one thing that is specific to almost all Baroque music is that it's generally smaller. Like there are generally fewer players because there weren't as many instruments invented at the time. And also just uh, the bigger, the bigger uh, sound, just like no one had even like thought of that yet. So I thought today we could do something like completely opposite and have like big grand pieces that are just so uh, over the top and dramatic. You're going to hear me say the word extra. A lot, uh, extra is a silly word that the youth of today came up with. This meaning like over the top, dramatic. Uh, so yeah, I, th- I decided to program a bunch of extra pieces, if you will. Now the first one was the f- the first the first track that I'm going to play was the first song that I uh, thought of when I thought I wanted to play all these pieces, and it's uh, Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. Now. There's something very special about the 1812 Overture, and that's that it has cannons in it. Not just one cannon, one time. No, no, no. There are so many cannons that get fired off at multiple points of this piece. It was originally uh, written to commemorate the successful defense of uh, like of Russia against Napoleon's Grande Armée, and like there's a.